You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition terminal ascent. Now, the terminal ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The terminal ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com. And while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right. Happy Thursday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode 24. Now, uh, some of you may be thinking to yourself, where did the last two episodes go? Because last week was episode 21. Uh, well, over the course of recording these um, and getting them all um, published and all that, there have been um, a few discrepancies, uh, more or less just in terms of numbering um, as things have went along. Um, we had uh, the very first episode was which was more or less just like a introductory episode um that i considered episode zero and then you can't you can't assign episode zero so it got assigned episode one so i was behind just one from the get-go there for a while and then when dan johnson over at nine fingers chronic nine, nine finger chronicles and sportsman's nation um did the episode with um nick Pinizzato from the NDA uh, about the merger with QDMA and NDA. Um, I didn't actually give that one a number or we didn't give a number. It was kind of a special episode, uh, but it still needed a number when we posted it. So that um, those two episodes right there are kind of your um, where the difference was coming from. So if you subscribe and you listen to it and it says episode 20, you know, 21 and then or I'm saying it's episode 21 in the intro. And then when you're looking at your screen, it's saying episode 23. So episode 24 this is episode 24 uh it's everything is going to line up now so now that we got that out of the way uh this week's guest is chris dalton 
Uh, Chris is the principal head stalker founder of South Ayrshire Stalking uh, out of Scotland. Um, and this was a really cool episode, and I learned a lot from Chris um, because uh, what we consider hunting, they, they call stalking, and it, it, it's essentially the same thing. Um, but things are done much differently uh, in Scotland as they are uh, here in the States. Even from, you know, how uh, someone goes about obtaining uh, a license or a permit, uh, is is much different um, where here in the states we just have you know kind of your your blanket um, hunter safety education that we all go through uh, that stays with us and allows us to buy our tags over there they have a couple different levels um, and based upon the level you can either just be like a level one or a level two and then once you get into level two and this was one of the differences that we talked about or that we touched on was you get into the anatomy of the animal and, and things to look for, um, you know, after you harvest the animal. So it, it's cool to hear about that, to hear, you know, some of the things that Chris is doing at their outfit there um, to really ignite and have hunters and non-hunters together having con- conversations about conservation, hunting, um, you know, sustaining sustainability in terms of hunting and it's really, uh, it's a really cool, I guess, way to go about it, to have that conversation and to just open up the dialogue. Because I think that's one of the things that we tend to find is we don't have enough of those conversations. Um, you know, too often one side is louder than the other and whatever the message may be that you're trying to kind of get across is, is lost in the noise. And the way Chris um, and his team are, are kind of handling that in their own way uh, is really cool. And uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing about that. Um, so a little bit of a longer episode. runs just over an hour, so not too bad. But uh, packed full of some great stories. And, and Chris is just a great guy. And um, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Uh, before we get into today's episode, though, want to take a second to talk about our partners over at Stone Glacier. Um, whether you're looking for, you know... A whitetail pack or a western pack, day pack, uh, pack for you know multiple days. Um, Stone Glacier has what you're looking for. Um, personally, right now I'm running the Avail 2200 uh, for whitetail season here in Michigan, and uh, it's perfect. It allows me to carry stuff out uh, into the feet, you know, into the stand, uh, throw some extra layers in the pack. Uh, actually, the other day I took my daughter out, uh, so she's three. So you can imagine the type of snacks and electronics and all the things you would never bring typically into the woods uh, I had with me. Uh, I was even able to strap an extra chair to the back of the pack, um, blankets for her, again, snacks, electronics, anything to try to keep her busy. Um, And it handled it and there was plenty of room in there, not only for that, but for anything that I wanted to bring out there as well. So um, I definitely highly recommend that. if you guys are interested, be sure to check out the website stoneglacier.com and there you're going to see, you know, really all that they have to offer, not just packs, but uh, outer layers, base layers, um, some lightweight tents, uh, sleeping bags, um, really anything that a hunter uh, would need to, to, to last outdoors and to be comfortable outdoors. So again, be sure to check them out, stoneglacier.com. 
All right. Joining me on the podcast today, all the way from Scotland, I have the founder of 2% Certified South Ayrshire Stalking, Chris Dalton. Chris, how's it going today? Yeah, we're good, thank you. It's nice to talk to you. I hope your weather's better than ours because it's a really miserable day in Scotland. Yeah, it's uh, it, it probably has a Scotland feel to it here in Michigan. It's about <laughs> 40 degrees, at least Fahrenheit, uh, and it's raining, and it's very dreary and overcast, and it's it's about what you come to expect this time of year. Yeah, that kind of that's kind of what everybody feels that the weather in Scotland is like. In actual fact, in truth be known, we get some extremely good weather in Scotland. And um, where I am, which is in the southwest corner, um, we're kind of looking out from my window now, looking out across the the sea to Ireland, uh, and the Isle of Arran is just on my right. And because the prevailing weather is southwesterly. Okay. Um, the rain tends to dump on Ireland and Arran and goes round sort of Glasgow and the Rins of Galloway. And we often are in a little eye here, a little microclime. So actually, it's a bit of a secret here. We don't spread it around too much. So we do have some really <laughs> nice weather. And I very, very rarely see snow at the house. But okay. I don't have to go far to find it in winter. But in the, in the the we don't have snow at the house because I'm only... Two miles from the coast, I can okay. see the I can see the sea from here. So we've got a quite a good climate. Yeah, that'd be uh, quite a view to have a, a view of the sea from from your office where you're sitting right there. That's got to be uh, pretty nice. It's pretty awesome. Uh, took me a while to find the place that we finally settled up here, um, but we're pretty pretty lucky. I'm not sure luck comes into it. I think you make your own luck to a degree, but yeah, yeah pretty privileged really to do what we're doing and and. The view from the office is, uh, is pretty spectacular. I'm not in it very often because I like to be out in the field, but when I'm in here, at least I'm looking at the green stuff. Yeah, and not just buildings. Yeah, wishing you were out there in the field. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, I kind of want to start off, and I do this with a lot of my guests too, to to try to kind of lay the foundation and paint a picture. So, how was it that the outdoors and hunting and stalking, how was that all introduced to you, uh, you know, whether it was later on in your life or as a kid? I mean, what did that look like for you? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I've been asked this a lot, actually. Um, <clears throat> I can need to take that back to probably my grandparents. My great-grandfather had a farm. He was a tenant farmer in rural Yorkshire, which is, I'm a Yorkshireman, I come from Yorkshire um, originally. And somehow uh, the genes from that or the DNA from that must have got into me. <laughs> My grandfather was a great countryman, although not a shooting, not a hunting man, um, but he was a great horticulturalist and he grew a lot of his own veg. And the property that he lived in was, was quite remote. It was on the edge of a, of a, of a wood. Um, there was a rough track to it, so actually there was no car. So basically to get anywhere, they would have to walk across about four or five fields to the little country lane and then the bus would come come past and you would catch the bus to go to wherever you wanted to go. And from being very young, I spent as much time as I can remember there. Um, I spent more time with my grandparents than I did with my parents, which was nothing wrong with my parents, by the way. I had a great (laughs) childhood, but it was just because I loved it. So there was something in me from being a toddler, wandering around that plot, uh, which was a large sort of um, garden where he grew all his own vegetables. Uh, and obviously there was just something there. I can't put my finger on it. Um, the actual, I've always been very interested in nature. I've always been very interested in self-sustainability. I think this is the Yorkshireman in me. Um, a lot of you guys probably don't know the myth about Yorkshire is that we're supposed to be very tight, um, i.e. mean. 
Uh, and if we can get out for note or something for nothing, then we like to do it. <laughs> so I kind of get a real buzz about walking out into the garden and picking what we're going to eat for dinner. And I still do that to this day. Yeah. So there's kind of something from a very early age. Um, the shooting side of it really was something that I just got. I don't know why or what it was. I was always interested in that. And as soon as I was legally able to to get a, 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 a weapon, which in, in, in our case was a was an air rifle, and you can get, in those days you could get them, you know, pretty much from being, you know, a young teenager really. Okay. Uh, and so I got an air rifle and started plinking around with an air rifle, and it just kind of the natural progression just followed on. So there was no family member that was a big shooting man. Um, deer stalking wasn't really happening then as much. Um, deer stalking was 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 a bit of a privileged occupation in those days. Um, it's, a, it's a different ballgame now. So that was kind of my lead into it, really. It was it was just, there was something in me countrywide that led me down that particular track. Okay. And then that sounds fairly similar to a lot of the guests I've talked to and really just, I think, how a lot of people in the States here are introduced to the outdoors right it's 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 a father it's a grandfather or you know grandmother whatever the case um may be that they they can't quite put their finger on it like you said but something is they're 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 spending a lot of time with them and there's something about that environment um the, the lessons that they're passing on that just kind of sparks something right it, it whether it's a curiosity for the outdoors uh for sustainability like you mentioned um it's it's something that is almost ingrained in you or instilled in you at a very young age and then as you get older it's just it just kind of cultivates right it, it just yeah. it just grows into this you know passion this obsession this just love for nature and the outdoors that unless you're you know you're, you're doing it a lot or you're spending a lot of time out outdoors it's it's kind of hard to explain to someone who who isn't a hunter or who doesn't you know spend a lot of time in the outdoors what kind of nature and things like that how it makes you feel and 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 the joy you get from being out there yeah you're right and and and, you know i I do despair a lot these days for for the youngsters uh and one of the things we try and do a lot is encourage youngsters but you do find that today young people tend to spend more time looking at a screen or a phone in fact Yep. A lot of older people spend all the time doing it as well. <laughs> but what we do find is that the moment you introduce one of these individuals into that outdoor environment, whether it be poking around with a net in a little river and catching a few tadpoles, or whether it's just following somebody around, maybe with an air rifle who's messing around, just, just with a bit of zeroing or target practice, they are instantly interested and they mm-hmm. love it. The difficulty is now getting more of those people to experience that because you need to get folk involved at an early age because they will be hooked they will absolutely be hooked um and that's that's kind of one of the things that i rack my brains constantly on you know i've had a great life uh, and you know we're very healthy um and, it, and you don't need scientific studies to tell you that it's a good way to live because it's just a good way to live right. i don't need a scientist to research it for 15 years to tell me that Really, we should be eating our own vegetables and we should be getting exercise, la da da We need to get the young folk involved at an early age. Um, and I just don't, I despair sometimes because I just don't see how we're going to do it. But, we, you know, we've got to kind of try and push that. And you put them in that environment and they will love it. They will actually love it. Every one of them will love it and they will want more. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and there has been, um, here in the States as well, over the past, I mean, I'm almost 40 
you know, I think back to my childhood and, you know, it was one of those things where the, my parents were just like, go outside and play, right? You know, they, yeah. and we had, you know, woods and, and lakes and rivers around where I grew up. So it was, you know, just kind of be smart and, you know, come home when it's dark or right before dark or we'll come get you. And you get to kind of experience those things on your own. Um, but then there was also, you know, hunting with my father, you know, fishing with my father, you know, things like that. So I was getting like a, a very steady, constant dose of the outdoors. And yeah, it, it's, it, you're right. If, if you get exposed to it at an early age, it's just, you're going to be hooked. I, I, I completely agree with that assessment. Yeah. And, and, um, again, I think it's another one of my pet, I sort of get on my soapbox a lot about this, but <laughs> we wrap, we try and wrap kids up in cotton wool. Now I, I, I understand that, you know, there are possibly more risks today. There are more people about and right. traffic and all the rest of it, but you've got to let kids get out there. You've got yeah. to let them scratch their knees. You've got to let them climb a tree and fall out. And okay, every now and again, one's going to break an arm. We all did it, yep. but they're a lot better for it. Um, and, you know, we seem to be having this, everybody seems to have allergies. He's got colds and allergies. It's because they're not exposed to any dirt. They've oh. been cotton wool and put disinfectant on them every time they come through the door, and then they're going to catch something because you're trying to protect them. You know, I drink water out. I still do it now. We're up on the hill. We've just come back from Connecticut. I'm thirsty on the hill. I'll drink water out of the stream. And I'll have clients look at me as if I've come off the planet Zarb. <laughs> I'm going to drink the water out of the stream. Well, there might be a dead deer two miles up. Well, fine, it's coming through peat. It's clean. I said, I'd rather drink that than what comes out of the tap. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, I've never got ill from drinking water out of the stream. And yet they're lugging a, a litre bottle of water around in their pocket, you know, three miles across a hill. There's yeah. plenty of water on the hill. Just get down there and drink it. Yeah. This is where we're going wrong we really need to get back to some basics yeah i could what you just said about everyone has allergies and stuff nowadays i mean i feel like i just went on that same rant with my wife not too long ago that it's just it, you know i mean we have public schools here in in michigan in the states here where you can't have any like you can't bring peanut butter into the school because half the school has peanut allergies oh, yeah, and it's yeah. just like that when I was growing up, or when my wife was growing up, like that was never even a thought, never a con, you know a consideration, anything like that. And to the point of what you said, you know, falling out of trees and stuff like that. Heck, I remember you know growing up, you know, if if you would fall, or you would scrape your knee or something. Like the old saying was always, "Rub some dirt in it, you know, yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. It'll Absolutely. it'll heal, you, you know." Yeah, that's this is it's, it's 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 immunity. This is how immunity builds up. You expose yourself to mm -hmm. a weak version of whatever. All right, every every now and again you're going to catch something nasty, possibly. Well, that's just unlucky. Um, but far better that than than the alternative, which is every time you do anything, you're going to go down to the A and E or you need some antibiotics or you need some time. I don't go to a doctor. If I go to a doctor, there's something really wrong with me. Yeah, yeah, um, that that sounds like my know, dad. There are people in there that have got their own seats. They're there every day. You know, this is Fred's seat because you know they'll have something wrong with it tomorrow. Um, <laughs> And it really, it really galls me. It winds me up because it's just, you know, I, I kind of get sometimes off on one because you can just see the stupidity and the futility of it. And and, and, and the answer's a complex answer, but it's relatively straightforward. We just need to kind of get back a little bit to, yeah. to how we were. Yeah. Um, you know, we're meat eaters. That's what we're designed to, to, to eat meat. So, you know, if you're sort of filling yourself full of tablets and pills and eating, eating grass all the time, you're not going to be particularly healthy. You know, you've got to, you got to get. You got to do what we're. It's DNA. It's, it's how we're made. Yeah. You got to accept that's how we are. So get out there and, and and deal with it. Yeah. No, I I completely agree. So, why don't you tell uh, tell me about um, your your company there, South uh, Ayrshire Stocking? 
um, what it is that you guys do, you know, some of the, the different animals that you guys stalk or hunt, you know, tell me about that. We kind of do everything. We sort of go back to the to the to the start off, really. I mean, I I, um, I had a military career, um, travelled all around the world, and um, so my options of, of, of hunting were kind of. I tried to do a bit where, wherever I was, but I moved around quite a lot, so it's quite difficult to, to to put roots down. So I came to deer stalking relatively late in my life, towards the end of my military career. I was a commissioned officer in the air force. So towards the end of my military career, I was then able to. Um, start to put some roots down and start to get into stalking. Now we're probably talking around the the early 90s at this okay. time. Now, prior to that, deer stalking in the UK was probably started before that, and we've been stalking deer for a long time. But but it, it it became massively popular around that time, and lots and lots of people were kind of wanting to get into it. And I think a lot of this is people were starting to think about sustainability and, and you know producing and, and harvesting their own food uh, and it's a very easy uh, country sport to defend I mean people use the term blood sports which I don't like at all it's not a blood sport um, at all um, you know it's a country pursuit we're harvesting an animal that we, mm-hmm. we're going to eat or we're, we're shooting an animal to for a management purpose right um, so that kind of was all happening around about that time so if you like I kind of sort of really got an interest in stalking around about the time it was really starting to take off in, in the UK. Uh, a lot of the um, stalking and methods of stalking in the UK came back from servicemen in Germany. So British Army officers out in Germany got involved with the hunting in Germany. And a lot of the, a lot of the sort of uh, popularity, I think, also stemmed around that sort of time. Plus, there was a lot of commercial planting of foresters, forest grant schemes, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of was in the bottom end of it. And that's when I really liked, wanted to get interested in stalking. Um, so when I kind of finally retired and, and, and what I kind of really wanted to do was come up to Scotland and, and operate a stalking business. Um, so I had a very short learning curve and really, really loved stalking for a period of probably seven or eight years when I spent every minute of every day that I could uh, manage to get away from work and stalk. That's what I was doing. Uh, and then I thought, right, that's it. I'm coming out of the rat race now. We're going to go and uh, we're going to set a business up in Scotland and we're going we're gonna to start a stalking business. And literally, that is what I did. Okay. But my main thrust then was to try and introduce people to the sport because what I found coming into the sport with no family member that was a stalker or, or a friend that was a stalker, how the hell do you get going? How right. do you start? You know, I, I knew my way around weapons. I've been using weapons all my life. Um, you know, close protection officer, etc. So I knew my way around military weapons and close protection weapons, but not not sporting rifles, right. shotguns, duck shooting, pheasant hunting. Yeah, lots and lots of that, but not rifles. So there was a gap. There was a niche. There really wasn't many people out there who wanted to take a novice, and the few people that I contacted didn't really seem that interested. Okay. They really wanted the guys that kind of knew what they were doing, uh, not somebody that's green and you know doesn't know his ass from his elbow. I thought to myself, there's got to be a market for this. There's got to be a market, and that's essentially what we did. So we bought a house in Scotland, set it up to provide good accommodation, growing our own food, all the sustainability and the ethical side of it, and let's just see if there's people want to come and be shown how to do it. Because right. I'd learned the hard way, so I can teach people from the school of hard knocks. You know, I spent a year frightening deer, I think. And eventually one of them was stupid enough. I think it was probably blind. It had a white cane or something. I managed to shoot one. Uh, and then it kind of all started to drop into place. So then I, 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 I very, I, you learn quickly. Yeah. You learn quickly. 
My father-in-law was an ex-butcher of 40 years, so I co-opted him and said, right, Trevor, here's a deer. How do I cut it up? He hadn't got a clue, but he said, well, it looks a bit like a lamb. Sure. And I've cut, in 40 years, I've cut a lot of lamb up, so let's tackle it that way. And from that, I did the butchery side of it, messed around with that, tinkered around with it, and then I felt ready to go, so we started the business. And from really getting the house ready, which took us about six months, to starting out a little bit of the business stationery and that, and then I put an advert out, and honestly, the phone's not stopped ringing. It started ringing from virtually, I can remember my wife and I sitting around at the table when everything was ready. She'd retired from teaching. Um, we were sat down and saying, right, we're ready to go now. They can start coming. And we thought, hmm, I wonder if anybody will come. Right. Uh, but they did. They did. And we learned the hard way. Um straight in at the deep end and that's how the business started so we originally set off to um, teach people about stalking teach people about the ethics of it the sustainability of it the correct way to do it why we do it you know we don't just go out and shoot a deer we go out and shoot a deer for a reason right. there is a specific reason why we're doing that we are selecting an animal we may go out and see some deer we may go out and not see any deer but just because we see a deer we ain't going to shoot it yeah. shoot a deer for a very very specific reason whether that be for the table whether that be because we're protecting a crop and we need to manage numbers or whatever there is a reason for that um and people quickly bought into that this from goes back to what we were talking about a lot of people had wanted to try this a lot of people really um wanted to get into it but there wasn't a great mechanism for it and i can honestly say this because i i started sort of t telling people this when they booked i said i've got to tell you that deer stalking in particular should come with a, a government health warning like they do on a packet of cigarettes because you will be hooked. You get out here and I take you stalking deer, you will be hooked and you will be coming back. And honestly, there's only one person in the whole of the 16 years that I've been doing that has not taken up the sport in one form or another. Really? And I can tell you now, that guy, when he came, said he wasn't going to do it and he told me why and he'd inherited, he'd married... Uh, 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 his wife, well obviously married his wife he'd married a girl who became his wife and she was inheriting a farm and he and there were deer on the farm and he had, the, the farm had stalkers coming on to manage the deer and he did not want to be in a position of owning a farm and not knowing the ins and outs of stalking so okay. he came on, on our introduction to stalking package specifically to understand what it was about and he shot a deer with me um, and then went away and said I'm not going to do it again but now I know when I talk to these guys, what they're doing, and if they're telling me a lot of crap, I know they're talking crap. And that's why he did it. And he's the only one that hasn't continued with the sport. Um, yeah. And that sounds like it's a, it's kind of a one-off case, right? He wanted to, he had a very specific reason for Absolutely. wanting to come, to come to the, uh, to your, to your camp and, and just have an understanding of how, how it all works and, and, and the purpose behind it. So I can, I can understand that, but yeah, even that aside, you know, there's always going to be a, a flyer, an outlier for, for any circumstance or yeah. any event. So that's pretty impressive that the one... It's a pretty small, pretty yeah. small percentage. Uh, and really then just what, what, what I didn't anticipate, I mean, basically the service we, we, we offered was the whole spectrum of, of deer stalking. So we, were, we, we, you know, our initial advert was, you know, if you want to come stalking with us, we'll take you stalking, experienced, inexperienced want to learn a little bit more about it but we were specifically geared up for the complete novice yeah what i didn't anticipate happening at that stage i can tell you you know as we've just discussed it's a it's a high take up it's a massively high take up 
These guys then want to go down the process of applying for firearm certificates out here. They want somewhere to use the rifle uh, and they want to continue with that and get qualifications. So basically, all of a sudden, there was a real knock-on effect of a lot of little different angles we started doing. We were, we were training people how to butcher deer. We were training people on, on, on total ethics and the management side of it. We were taking them through to their qualifications within the, the UK. And there's those guys then needed somewhere to stoke. So once again, the qualifications are actually coming back to us mm-hmm. to assist us manage the ground that we're actually stoking. So a lot of the guys that started with me are still here, an awful lot. In fact, um, you know, we, we were talking about it earlier, just, just when we chatted before we came on air. Um, the guy that's going to take over the business, Steve Thompson, is a guy that started stoking with me many years ago. His brother, now he's employed as our head stalker, started stalking at the same time as his brother. Okay. You know, I've got, I've got guys that help me out when I'm a bit stuck, who are people that I trained 15 years ago who are now avid stalkers, and three or four of them have actually moved up to Scotland. I've got four of them living within a relatively close proximity to where we are now, purely have come because of the because of the stalking. So the business kind of expanded a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how it's just a natural evolution rather than a, a specifically thought through direction. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes those are the best those are the best um kind of businesses that that just have this very natural um homegrown organic growth to them right yeah. i mean you you set out to do one thing and then as you get into that you realize that there's other things that you can that you can do to kind of further your mission or further your goal with getting people introduced to stalking and the the importance behind it and that it's like you said before it's not just you know you're not just shooting an animal to shoot an animal i mean there's there's so much that goes into that whole process right and yeah yeah, to to be able to branch out into to different kind of areas is is great and i think when you do that you're doing it for the right reasons right you're not just going well i can do this even though i don't know how and just make more money you're saying okay well there's a, a very large benefit to this it's going to you know, enhance or it's going to, yeah, it's going to enhance the experience of people that are coming in to hunt here. So now they're coming in they're they're taking a certification for stalking. We're taking them out, they're harvesting an animal, but now they're also seeing how to, how to process the animal. Right. And, and yeah. they're doing all these things that maybe someone who just comes and says, yeah, I just want to, you know, I just want to go stalking for a few days. I just want to go hunting for a few days. I want to shoot a deer. Right. But now they have that opportunity to learn something that maybe they weren't even planning on prior to coming in. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think you're right. It, it's if I was looking at it from the outside, you know, the sort of operation that we run would be one that I would want to go to. I would I would make a beeline for. That's the that's the kind of people that I, w- I want to work with. I want to understand. Um, yeah, that's what we try. We try to do it anyway. That's what that's what we try to do. Yeah. Now it would. I, I, I'm not sure if you've if you've ever had the chance to to hunt here in the states, but a lot of what we consider like our Western style hunting is what I would assume is probably more like deer stalking over there in the UK where it's a lot of, it's a lot of hiking. It's a lot of, you know, looking, you know, looking through your, uh, you know, glassing, looking for animals. And then as the name says, you know, putting a stalk on the animal to try to get within, you know, ethical range to, to take a shot, to harvest the animal. Is that, is that a pretty fair comparison? It is. Yeah. And, and, and again, we, we, we spoke earlier, you know, we get people from all over the world here and there's very few places on this on this planet where I've not had somebody come stalking with us. And it's it seems to be a pretty unique thing in the UK where the vast majority of what we do is, is the foot hunt, is the actual stalk. 
Um, it may cover quite a long way, uh, certainly not the sort of distance as some of you guys are uh, tracking from people I've spoken to. And probably the closest to that will be the open hill stalking for the red deer, where this is kind of open moorland, and you know you, you may have to go up a, a, a felt again not in American terms, but here you know our our what we call a Munro, which is a peak which is above three thousand feet. Okay. Um, so that you might have to go quite a long way up to work across the tops to drop down onto a group of stags on the open hill because they've developed very good, uh, very very good eyesight for movement and very good sense of smell. So that might be equate in some terms to some of you guys chasing goats around the, the high peaks and sheep and all the rest of it. Um, the woodland stalking, which is the type of stalking closer to home with commercial forestry, is very much more um, moving very slowly, very carefully and looking a lot. And actually one of the early stalking books I read um, took a phrase from uh, one of the Indian chiefs, one of the American Indian chiefs, I can't remember which one, which was basically move a little, look a lot. Yeah, um, that's kind of the analogy for for woodland stalking. So we might cover maybe a mile, half a mile, but it might take us in certain environments an hour and a half to cover that. So we literally are really good field craft. You kind of tune in. This is what I like about it, particularly with roe, which is the the most common species around here. Um, it's very much you're tuning into the environment. You're not creating that human bow wave. You know, people walking down Oxford Street in London create a bow wave in front of them as they charge from one place to another. That's one of the things I have to rein in from hunters that are new to it. I almost could do the shepherd's crook and then when I'm behind them, when they're learning is put the crook around the neck and pull them back and say, slow down. Yeah. They're just off and they're frightening them. It's just bow wave. There's birds flapping out of trees. There's little wrens squawking an alarm call. You've really got to tune back and you need to become part of the environment. You need to use your ears. You need to use your nose and you need to use your eyes. I'm basically fit in. And if you're stalking a wood or a piece of ground properly, you're not disturbing anything. Right. That's difficult to do. But you get so tuned in, zoned in to what you're doing, that you're then starting to behave like the animals that we are. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to go back a little bit. We've lost a lot of our senses. But you can retrain yourself and re-educate yourself to use some of them to a lesser extent. You're never going to be as, as effective as an animal. They're always going to have the drop on you in terms of their senses, right? Uh, because they live on their wits. Uh, we don't have to do that, but you can you can sort of start to get into the zone, and that you know that's a real buzz that I get out of you know kind of proper hunting, and we do that uh, we, predominantly. We do that a lot. I suppose our stalking will be split into two, either sitting or or stalking. Most people want to stalk, but quite an effective tool sometimes will be we we put high seats or or blinds, as you would call them, or towers, mm-hmm. in various strategic locations, looking down a ride or an open area in a forest, and we'll sit. A lot of your bow hunters, you know, classically, using your, your, your tree stands and that. We do a lot of that as well, okay. particularly on an evening. We tend to do that most on a night. I mean, deer are most active not at night, um, so they're quite wary coming out on an evening as the as the light starts to, to fade, uh, whereas... In the daytime, they've often been feeding out a long way from cover in, in cover of darkness. So stalking is probably a generalisation. But stalking is probably more effective in the morning than it is at night. So if you were, if I was kind of most of an evening, most times on an evening you're probably going to sit, and most times in the morning you're probably going to stalk. I hoped. Um, so essentially, that's kind of how the, the the thing is split up. It could also be. You know, you also got to 
bear in mind which species you're stalking, because we mentioned this earlier on. In the UK, we've got six species of deer. That, there are six species of deer in the UK, and we hunt them all. Um, basically, the most common would probably be the roe uh, and uh, red deer and muntjac. Um, muntjac, an invasive species, established themselves here from deliberate releases or escapes from captivity, uh, and they're spreading rapidly throughout the UK. But the six species we have are basically the three largest species. The largest of them is a red deer, which most people are familiar with. It's kind of on most hunters' bucket list to come to Scotland and hunt a red deer in yeah. the rut on the hill, which we've just been doing literally this last week. Um, we've got fallow and seeker deer. Seeker deer are slightly problematic because they're a non-native species and they will hybridise with the red deer and have done um, quite extensively through a lot of the UK now. So it's some in some places in a lot of places quite difficult to say that you've got genetically pure red deer there's probably some seeker blood in them and then the smaller deer species we've got roe which is a native species probably my favorite deer to hunt in roe pretty little deer and then we've got the chinese water deer and the muntjac um, chinese water deer um, the uk has quite a significant um, number of the chinese water deer the world's chinese water deer population again escapees or uh, deliberate releases um, and they're doing quite well in the UK. I think uh, we're somewhere in the region of about 15 to 20% of the world's Chinese water deer population is in the UK, I think. Okay. I'm okay. 100% on the figure, but pretty sure we've got a significant number of those. So those are the deer species we hunt. Now, with having some, some non-native species there, what do what do your seasons look like? I mean, is it, like I know, I'll just go back to here in the States. I mean, usually... Yeah, depending on the species, you know, the season starts on one day and it ends on another day. Or maybe you can use archery equipment for, let's say, six weeks. And then after that, you can use a firearm. So what does that look like, um, seasons look like over there? Yeah, essentially, without getting too there's slightly different seasons in Scotland and England, which is, there's no real reason for that. It's just political. Sure. You know, like we get a lot of. So, but basically, broadly speaking, when the male season finishes, the female season starts. There is a bit of a gap for some deer. Um, roe deer, let's take roe deer for example. Um, one species or another is in season all year round. Okay. So basically when the roe male deer season ends, which is the, um, the, 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 end, sorry, the 20th of October, um, the female deer season starts. So we've literally just crossed over. Yeah. We've literally just crossed over now from male rodeo to female rodeo. So we're now hunting female rodeo. Okay. Um, and the other species broadly follow that broadly follow that pattern. Um, male finish, female starts. The difference are Chinese water deer. And the reason for that predominantly is Chinese water deer are very difficult to tell apart until they're about 18 months of age. Because the Chinese water deer doesn't have any antlers, it just has tusks. It's oh, okay. quite a pre deer. So basically, and they're open rooted, uh, up, so they basically grow and went a bit like our teeth. So if it breaks a, if it breaks a tooth, it's, it's lost it. So they continue growing until they're about 18 months, two years old, and then they're fully mature. But only the males have the tusks. Okay. And when they're quite small, you can't see them. Um, so basically, a Chinese water deer that's you know, six, eight months old, you'll not be able to differentiate whether it's got tusks or not. So difficult to actually tell the species apart. So because of that, the Chinese water deer season, males and females are in season at the same time of year. It's only a short season, kind of November through to March. Okay. So we've got in season at the same time. A muntjac, because they breed all year round, so they can breed at any time of year, um, they're in season all year round. 
So, and, and they're classed as an invasive species. So they, you know, the ecologists and the powers that be consider them to be quite damaging to the UK flora and fauna, and therefore they're in season all year round. So whilst we've got some guidelines on the ethics of shooting, you know, how we shoot them and how we try to prevent orphaning youngsters, etc., um, they are actually in season all year round. So that broadly is how it kind of works. So we are always, there is always a species of deer that we can hunt. Okay. All yeah. year. Bow hunting, as you probably know, is not allowed in the UK. That's a whole different debate, but we, we can't bow hunt. And there are some fairly specific legislation about what you can and can't use in terms of rifle. So we've got some laid down, clearly laid down rules on, on the type of weapon that you can use. Like the caliber. Calibers and, and bullet weights and speeds, okay. etc. Okay. So that's that's interesting with the, like you said, with the depending on the species, the, how the season is split up with male then female or, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, like here in the States, you know, depending upon the, the tag that you have, you know, you can shoot either a male or a female at, you know, during the season, as long as you're, you know, you have a tag for it. But yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And, and now are all of those like the, the male season and then the female season, are those kind of lined up around when, um the animals are rutting when they're you know when the deer go um yeah it is absolutely i mean essentially we're we're shooting males uh, when they're in hard antler primarily i'll be shooting females when they're not breeding and they don't have dependent young yeah so it's kind of ethically orientated yeah. okay there is um a, there is some pressure in the uk um because of uh, carbon sequestration and reforestation there's a lot of grant money now wanting to push into this area um, deer are uh, a herbivore and eat trees so there's a big conflict between ecologists forest managers and deer um, some debate whether or not we should have a close season for male deer um, and essentially you know an ecologist would say, well, why are we not shooting male deer all year round? We want to reduce deer. Well, they want to reduce deer numbers, not yeah. we. Um, so, so they're looking at it from a purely protection of a tree and a native sort of fauna scenario, uh, flora scenario, whereas we're looking at it from, from a management and an ethical perceptive, perception. So there is a debate going on at the moment about that. Um, I think the problem you get with... I don't see it so much in the UK. It's certainly something that you, I see a lot on continental Europe. Um, is a kind of deer management philosophy, and I don't want to generalise, but a lot of conversations I have with, with with guys from Europe are, they tend to think that if they have a lot of females, those females are going to produce a lot of baby deer, and a fair percentage of those baby deer are going to be males, so they'll have more trophies, to an extent, which right. is totally wrong. Right. Um, what you need to do is control your females to control your population. The problem is people tend to, hunters generally, generally would maybe think about if they've got the option between the female and a male and they've got a male there with a nice rack on, they're going to shoot the male. Every time. So if we kind of, if we kind of allow them to do that all year round, I just wonder just how much of a bad and negative effect that would have on the overall balance of the population. Which is one of the things you know we at South Asia Stalking and, and a number of other people are trying to do is educate people onto the the ethics of and, and how we control deer and why we should manage and the population models and what we should be shooting and what we shouldn't be shooting to end up ultimately with a with a nice healthy group of deer. Yeah. Uh, and if you go around whacking away at all your males, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. Because you're going to have an overabundance of females. 
and an overabundance of females and even an overabundance of young males on your ground is not going to produce you good healthy animals because there's going to be too much competition right so you do have to control that uh, unfortunately man has screwed up the, the planet big star there's too many of us that's had a real negative effect on a lot of other species and an environment so we have to control that we've got to accept that we, we do have to control that we do have to take a hand in the management of that but if we're going to do that then we should be doing it on a on a, on a, on a basis that's got some scientific background right. some reason for what we're doing so we end up with the best we can get out of a shrinking um green um planet yeah yeah that's i i think that that's very important to have a scientific outlook at how you're managing you know your your herd and your population like here in the states we have quality deer management association qdma which is a very large um, conservation organization and they put a large emphasis on you know practicing these quality deer management practices right and it is you know trying to you know shoot an older class deer um, but also managing the herd so that you know you don't have an abundance of you know females compared to to males Um, you know but it also not just from that perspective, but they also talk a lot about, you know, how you can, you know, increase or, yeah, I guess, create a better habitat for the animals that maybe are on your property or that you're hunting, you know, whether it's you do, um, doing like hinge cutting, creating better bedding area, you know, food sources throughout the year. It's just, it, you know, even though you're taking animals off this property or taking animals out of this herd, you're, you're strengthening the herd, right? You're, whether it's good genes that you're just letting pass through to future generations, getting out, you know, deer that maybe have disease, whatever the case is. And I think that, yeah, you have to, you have to take a scientific approach when it comes to managing, you know, your herd. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we tend to work on it. There's no one, no, no, no one kind of uh, equation or formula fits all scenarios. Each one's got to be on, assessed on a standalone basis. But a general, a general rule of thumb, a general good rule of thumb for us would be we would look at taking 60% young, 20% mature, and 20% old, mm-hmm. which tends to give you quite a nice population model. Now, clearly, you would assess the deer on your ground before you kind of made it. But that's a that's a general a good base sort of starting point for what we would. We would kind of look at and that kind of gives you a reasonably a healthy kind of deer population at the end of it um accepted if you've assessed a piece of ground and there aren't many deer on it you probably don't need to take any right um, and the other end of the equation if there's there's an area that the, the population has got too high and they're starting to come into conflict with with, with you know commercial interests or, or public safety um, then clearly you might have to you know really sort of hit them hard to bring that population down into 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 a balance but it should be done in a in a in a way that's that's pro- properly assessed yeah. and properly managed, uh, and, and, and and properly supervised, so that you know folk kind of know what they're doing. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do because actually, actually counting deer in in an area is an incredibly difficult thing to yeah. do unless you put a lot of resources to overfly, you know, with thermal imaging and all the rest of it. Um, so that can be tricky. And sometimes, you know, you, you, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we look at a piece of land and we're not seeing a lot of good deer and we think maybe we've overshot, perhaps we should back off a little bit. And then three or four months down the line when the cover dies down, the things are popping up everywhere. So, um, you know, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. Then that's experience coming into play about yeah. you're looking at lots of different factors and indicators which might just give you a general feel for a population. And kind of the more you 
you've done it, the more you kind of you, your general gut feeling tends to be, you know, tends to be reasonably accurate. Plus, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes in the past, and you know, it's a fool that doesn't learn from the mistakes. So it, 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 it's it's not an easy thing to actually balance this equation. Yeah, yeah. And to me, this kind of all ties into the bigger picture, which is conservation, right? Yeah. And how as hunters as stalkers you know we know that that hunting and managing herds is that that's a very large part of you know a conservation ethic that was instilled in us at you know some point or another whenever we decided to to get into this profession into this hobby this sport so and and you guys are obviously two percent certified so how was it that you guys like learned about two percent and everything that they stood for yeah, I mean, a friend of both of us, Byron Pace, who, who you know, um, I, I, the reason I initially got sort of hooked up with Byron was that I do a lot of filming for The Shooting Show, which is a, an internet-based shooting channel over here, um, probably the second largest, actually. I think one of the third or fourth in Europe. Um, and Byron used to do all my filming, so he and I had a lot of conversation, you know, a lot of time for Byron. We both were on the same ethic. Um, you know, we both kind of all singing from the same sheet. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think I would have probably progressed through to uh, knowing as much as I do know about the 2% for conservation, uh, conservation um, side of the house without my business partner, Steve Thompson. Steve came in, and one of the reasons I kind of invited him and we were talking about it was I felt that, you know, I needed a, a, needed a fresh input. Mm -hmm. He needed some some direction. Now I am I am all about sustainability. My whole life has always been about yeah. sustainability. You know, we we you know I keep bees. We have free range chickens. We, the veg we eat for a meal, I go and harvest it. We, we grow. We we could be taught pretty much self sufficient. I, I just get a buzz out of that. Yeah. So I've always been down that road. And the ethic of trying to bring young young people in and teach them the correct way, butcher and eat what we shoot. That has always been my philosophy. But I wasn't really aware of the of that there is a probably a formal way of recognizing what you're actually doing. You know, I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it and Steve started talking to me. He said, Hey, you know, you want to see what these guys are doing? And I went, Well, I like that because that's what we're all about. He said, But yeah, but we're actually doing that. I went, Well, are we? And he went, Yeah. And it's only then that you actually start to think about, well, what are we actually doing? And then you do think that, well, we're actually doing this. So and this is really what we're about. Um, so really my introduction to it was through Steve and originally probably through Byron. And, it, and Steve wanted to run with it and drive it. And I said, great, I, this, is, this is what you're here for, man. This is, the, you know, you're the young blood coming in here. Um, you know, get, get, kick me out of the way and let's, let's, let's go with it. Yeah. So that's kind of how we, we, we got involved. And I'm really glad we did, actually, because, it, again, it then starts to put you in touch with other people mm -hmm. across the planet who are thinking along the same line. We're all trying to achieve the same thing. We're all probably frustrated because we're not quite sure how we need to get this message across, particularly to the young folk. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're having the conversation, and we're bringing more and more people who actually start thinking about where we're actually doing this, but we need to make, uh, we need to flag up what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and then we, you know, we're, we're increasing the conversation, which I think is what we, we kind of need to do. So that that's how that honestly is how we, you know, we really got involved. Okay. Now, obviously with, with, with 2%, it's, you know, it's 1% of time and 1% of money back to conservation. So what, what are some of the conservation organizations that, uh, that you guys are spending your time with, um, over there? 
Well, I've already kind of alluded to it. There's a lot of there's a lot of work uh, done here now on on trying to reforest and, mm -hmm. and, and, and replant. So we're getting involved with a lot with you know environmental, ecological um, based people. Um, naturally, a lot of these areas are we have a lot of red listed species on them. Um, because basically, if you have, again, we've alluded to it, if you have a, a hunting operation, generally speaking, the land is well managed. If your land is well managed, um, then you tend to find that a lot of species kind of like it. And there are a lot of species now that are under threat. So by definition, a lot of these red listed species are on these are on these areas. So, I mean, we help out quite a lot by flagging up, you know, if planting schemes are going to going to go ahead in nesting season or anything like that which are a bit, obviously everybody's aware of but because we're on the ground we can say look you know we've got we've got curlews over there nesting or we've got you know we've got otters in the back down there or we've got great crested newts in here you know so we, we're involved an awful lot in that and a lot of that we, we you don't realize you're doing it we're giving up quite a lot of our time to be involved in that mm -hmm. at that side of the house but you, until you sit down and think about it you don't actually realize that you're doing it right so we do get involved massively in that and then the other thing that we're really trying to promote and push is is, is is education of the youngsters so we're trying to get them involved in in thinking about this you know like i said to you earlier on is talking around in a stream with a net you know because if we can get the young folk interested in nature and interested in protecting nature then we start to get the conversation going at the right level mm -hmm. uh, and getting into schools where we can and talking about what we're doing which is actually tuning people in to the real side of it when unfortunately an awful lot of the stuff they see is this negative stuff they see on social media and negative stuff they see in the media and we're our own worst enemies in, in many respects with some of the pictures i see on there so it's 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 just a, a a slow conversation that we need to have and get involved with all these organizations and also encouraging other people to get involved and teaching them you know why we need to be doing this and why it's important that we have these areas and why it's important that we're having these conversations um, and not shying away from the conversation. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a very good way to look at it. And I think that and uh, a gentleman I just spoke to earlier this week, um, who I recorded an episode with, he he works for a, a, a fishing guide service here in the states, and that's one of the things that he talked about. Just like what you just mentioned is, you know, being able to educate these people who are coming out for potentially the first time. Um, that the importance of maintaining, improving, you know, the land and, and the water that you're recreating on because, you know, hunting in nature is taking away from the land, right? So yeah. being able to, and it, for the right reasons, I, yeah, you know, but to be able to, to give back and to make sure that, you know, while you are taking away from it, it's, it's for the right reasons and that it's actually bettering the, the overall, um, habitat the overall herd population uh and everything like that and and if you can instill that like you just mentioned uh to the younger generation then that's that's i mean that's the future of of stalking the future of hunting right and yeah. and you know i think is especially here in the states there's almost kind of like a changing of the guard uh in terms of the like the age class, I guess, of, of a lot of people that are out hunting, uh, you know, where my like people like my father, my grandfather are kind of phasing out of um, of hunting just, you know, due to age and time and restrictions and things like that. 
And now you have people who are more, you know, in their 20s and their 30s that are being introduced to hunting. And social media obviously plays a very big role in that because they see, you know, all these, you know, giant trophy animals that are being harvested when in reality that's that's not hunting for the most part, you know. Um, there's certainly people who are very successful when it comes to harvesting animals, especially large, you know, big, older class animals. But the majority of it is, you know, that's that's not what we're able what we're able to hunt. So making sure that those people who are getting into it and understanding why, you know, you're you're harvesting the animals that you are, why it's important to, you know, to shoot females and not just all males is yeah, it's it's vital to retaining these hunters that you know that are coming into um into their journey with hunting but then also to sustain the population that's out there and to make sure that people who are non-hunters they understand why it is that we're doing it and it's not just because we like to to shoot animals because that's that's one of the things you hear all the time right like for from non-hunters and well not even necessarily non-hunters people who are just against hunting you know if you don't hunt and you don't really care i mean that's that's one thing but people are saying you know you're just hunting because you know you 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 want to show your your macho-ness or you know whatever the case is and that you can shoot a, a poor defenseless animal when that's not the case at all yeah it's really there's a lot of things you know what you're talking it's quite interesting because <clears throat> there's several i mean for example you know we whilst we're known for stalking we do manage a bit of ground for for, for, for game shooting as well mm-hmm. uh, and we we dig splashes you know we we cut margins we create shallows for the duck to feed we feed in the winter months. We have a catch and release policy on 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 the rivers. I manage a couple of rivers. You know, rivers run through the ground where the Atlantic salmon runs, um, local to just down from here. Um, it's a total catch and release policy. We have very specific records. We do, we don't take anything out. We put back. We try and create you know gravel areas for them to, to breed on. Clearing you know um, not not having a, a fast running stream. We're trying to create, create little eddies and so on. So we get kind of involved in yeah. in all of those things, but. The, the, the one the, the one conversation I have an awful lot is we we, we our, our operation provides accommodation. We have a very nice accommodation where I'm now. Um, people stay with us. We run it as a, a well, not so much now, but it's kind of so many regulars come that we, can, we don't have any new business, and and we get into the time where we wanted to slow down a little bit. But over the years, we've had lots and lots and lots of guests through here, and lots and lots and lots of non-shooting guests. So we, when we first started, we were a bed and breakfast. We ran two separate businesses. So we would have tourists coming, mm-hmm. and then we would have stalkers here all at the same time. And I wondered, you know, I wonder if we're going to have a, a bit of an issue here, because sure. we're going to have guys coming in from stalking with me in the morning, who at certain times of year will be sitting down for breakfast with bed and breakfast guests that come to have a trip over to the Mull of Kintyre, for example, or across to the um, Ailsa Craig, which is a rock out in the sea there. And I thought, no, I said, we're, we're going to have a conversation because this is a great opportunity. Yeah. This is a great opportunity to introduce this. Now, when the guests sit down for a breakfast, at our bed and breakfast, they get one of my venison sausages. They don't get asked if they're having a Scottish breakfast. They're having my venison sausages, sausages which I've made from a deer that we've shot. I, I, I maybe don't tell them that. Not through any um, any sort of deception. I might right. just forget. We're not getting around to it. You only want your breakfast for that full scotch, fine, egg, bacon, you know, sausage. And then I'll say, well, I made that sausage. And they go, wow, that's good. I say, well, yeah, because we shot the deer and it goes into the chiller and we butchered it and we're eating it. So that's a great way. And it's. I don't think we've ever 
we've ever had anybody that has really, really objected to that. The vast, vast majority of people have no idea about hunting, no idea about what we do. A lot of them think, well, yeah, you're going to shoot a deer. So what do you do then? We should walk out there and shoot two or three deer. Well, no, actually we don't. We walk out there and try and shoot a deer. Yeah. It's a lot cleverer than us. And they've got better senses. I said, but you know, if you know what you're doing, and you know, you you may get lucky. And then and then you know, some go to a dealer, which are going into the food chain. Quite a lot of them, I prepare ourselves, and you're eating it. And we used to do a lot of evening meals at that time, so we were serving venison as the main course on an evening meal as well, which would be whatever, folks. Anne's a very good cook, my wife. And it's a great way to have a conversation. And it's really been uh, quite. Um, surprising in many respects that it's the, the conversation has gone on then between the guys that are stalking and the and the tourists mm-hmm. um, and, and really we've educated them on on the like the sort of conversation that we are having so again in an unforeseen way um we kind of spread in the message which is which is what we've got to do i always say to people don't shy away from the conversation you're not ashamed of what you're doing there is no need to be ashamed of what right. you're doing and the moment somebody walks out of our door and goes down to the supermarket and buys a plastic chicken wrapped in foil, they've lost the argument. They don't have an argument. There is no conversation to have because they've lost it. Because the meat that we eat, we go out and we harvest. And if we don't harvest it, then we're eating meat. Um, You know, get some fish. And we can't have that because we put them all back. So, you know, enjoy your baked beans or whatever. But no, it's a good it's a good way of having a conversation. It's an easy it's an easy way of interest. It's not shoving it down somebody's face. It's a general conversation that comes up. And what I what, what has surprised me over all these years is it's it, it really has never been an issue. And even people that I would have thought maybe looking at them appearance wise, which is wrong to judge people by their appearance, thinking mm, this is not going to go well, um, always has gone, always has gone, you know, gone okay. They might not have agreed with it, yeah, but they've had the proper discussion and understand. They've all left with an understanding that they don't have an issue with what we're doing. They might not want to do it themselves, but they've got no issue with what they're doing. It's the perception of what we're doing when they mm-hmm. first come that needs to be addressed. I think we touched on it earlier on. Yeah. And that's one small way that we've been able to do it. And then the other thing I hear a lot, and I always challenge people, is you know, when I work in an, I work in a, an office, or I work in a factory or whatever, I don't tell people I'm coming hunting. Why? Yeah. Are you ashamed? Why? Well, you know, people might not like it. Well, fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but at least give them the facts. Yep. If you've given them the facts and then they don't like what you're doing, I have no issue with that. None at all. But don't let them base an assumption on shit they read in the newspaper. Let them base an assumption on fact from what we're doing. Present it well. Don't get stroppy about it. And let them make a judgment. And if they still don't like it, well, I accept that. Yeah. You know, I accept that fully. Yeah, and I think that that little the little kind of microcosm of that approach when it comes to to hunting is just kind of extrapolated you know by i don't even want to put a number on it in the world today where you know no one is understanding of what someone else believes or someone else values or anything like that and then there's just this this hate and oh well you hunt well i don't know anything about it but i don't like you because you do it or i don't i don't care what your reasons are i just i don't agree with it so you know and that that the the setting that you have there with having you know non-stalkers and stalkers you know having meals together of wild game 
I think is is it's a very easy way to to have that conversation. You know, it's not a combative or confrontational type of conversation. It's just like, hey, you know, this is this is why we do it. You know, this is this is the result of of these guys out, you know, stalking all morning is, you know, you guys can enjoy this beautiful, you know, sausage and, and these vegetables and, you know, all this stuff like that. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head there that it just, it opens up their mind to a different way of looking at it. And it, it squashes any, you know, preconceived notions that they may have of what hunting or stalking is. Yeah, I think, and I think you're right. I think if you look at the, uh, you know, look at the, at the global population, there'll be an element of, of, of we hunters who are not really presenting hunting in a good light, mm-hmm. a very small percentage of it, which are not helping the cause, unfortunately. And on the other side of the house, there will be some people who are genuinely completely entrenched in this should not happen and you know basically we should all be dead. Um, but most, the majority, are not really aware, don't really have a particular view I wouldn't call them anti-hunters. I right. would say probably just uninformed. Some have got various opinions, and probably generally don't think it's quite. They don't quite. They don't like it really. But maybe they don't know why. Why they don't like it, but they're there to be persuaded. So if you take out the extremes on either side, and we've both got them, and then you deal with the, you know, with the people in the middle, um, you know, there's a lot of people to be persuaded. Yeah. It's just how do we how do we have the conversation? Yeah. Um, that's the difficult bit. Yeah, and I think. The way you're handling it there is is a very good way to to have that conversation. And yeah, I, I I applaud you for recognizing early on that is this going to be a problem. Then you're like, no, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have the conversation. You you saw a potential problem, but then you saw a much bigger opportunity in terms of a solution. You said, nope, we're gonna do this, and you know, we're gonna have these conversations, and, and we're gonna open up the dialogue to people who maybe aren't familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 again, the Yorkshireman coming out me at the, right at the bottom end of that is that if they come here and they really don't like it, the hunters are staying. <laughs> but they better go look somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We never, never, we've never come to that. We've never come that far. We managed to sweet talk them around. No, we've never ever had it. We, we, it surprised me actually. I, if I'm honest about it, I thought in all this time we would have had we would have had people that genuinely were really entrenched in in, in not liking this. I mean. It probably they walk into our dining room and there are you know there are some deer heads on the wall in the dining room anyway, sure. uh, and there are some skins because oh, we have a wooden oak floor with some skins on it which look really nice and and you kind of think mm, you got somebody walking in and, and maybe take an instant dislike to that. They're t- it's subtly done. It's not shoved down your face. I right. mean, it, it's really nice, but um, it, it's not. It, it's been a pleasant. It has been a pleasant surprise to me. And equally. I think along the same line is that I wasn't really sure when we first started the business how many of the people, the stalkers that came through, would really be kind of interested in the actual butchery of, of the animal and actually eating something which they harvested. And it is a question on a, on a podcast I did with Byron Pace years ago because he was interested in asking the same question. And the uptake on people that subsequently want to go on and actually chop bits off a deer and eat it um, is high. Yeah. And, and I didn't think that would be the case. It's a lot higher percentage than, than, than I originally envisaged. So, you know, a lot of the outline signs out there really are very good. And even in this crazy situation we've got at the moment with, with COVID and all the rest of it, it's really focusing people's minds into countryside, looking after countryside, 
and we don't want to go and queue at a supermarket and put a mask on. Yeah. Let's go hunt and we'll have a venison sausage at the end of it without all of that nonsense. And kind of in a bizarre way, um, I mean, always, there's always good comes out of a bad situation. Right. And I just wonder if it will continue that people are generally taking more exercise, people are thinking about the countryside, people are wanting to get involved in it, apart from the fact that they're leaving a bit of a mess and need to take the shit over them, but um, they can be educated. But it, it, it's tended to channel people's minds a little bit. And I do see over the last probably particularly 10 years, people are really kind of getting into game food. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like in the States, but we have a massive amount of country chefs programs over here and, you know, all the rest of it. And an awful lot of, 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 of sustainably harvested meat, whether it be game, you know, venison, whatever, fish comes onto that kind of program. And people are really banging the drum a little bit now about the, the, the benefits of this. So there are some moves kind of in the right direction, kind of gentle undertones. I think we kind of, in some respects, there's a little bit of positivity on the on the horizon. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that because there's, like you said, over the last maybe decade or so, it, and maybe this has to do with social media, so it's it's out there for more people to consume, but you're starting to see a bit of a, you're starting to see more of an emphasis put on hunting for sustainability, not because, you know, their dad did it, so they're going to do it, or not because they just want this big trophy, because they can say, well, I shot it, I butchered it, and now I'm eating it, right? Like they, there's, It takes any question or guesswork out of, you know, how the meat was raised or, you know, how it was killed or, you know, where it came from, anything like that, because you're the only person that's ever touched that meat. So yeah. I think that there's a lot of people who are finding um, a lot of, you know, kind of joy in being able to harvest their own meat and telling people that they harvested their own meat. And I mean, think about all the money that you save too from not having to, you know, buy all this beef from the grocery store. Absolutely. That's what really, that's what appeals to the Yorkshiremen. Yorkshiremen living in Scotland. I mean, you know, anything <laughs> we can save a book is good for me. But it's, a, it's a good way of getting a message over. It's a yeah. simple way of getting a message. You've got, to, you've got to keep it in simple terms. I think you've got to be honest with people. Don't tell them, don't tell them any lies. Yeah. Um, you know, it, yeah, we kill a deer. At the end of it, we kill a deer. But the pleasure is not in killing the deer. No, There's no. Any particular pleasure in killing anything. No. I get pleasure in harvesting an animal that I'm going to eat or in ethically hunting an animal or teaching somebody how to ethically hunt an animal that's where the pleasure comes from yeah people can't grasp the fact that as hunters we have a huge amount of respect for our quarry we love to see our quarry we'll do everything possible to to maintain the habitat to maintain the the, the, the species no hunter wants to kill the thing that he's hunting it's yeah. completely stupid none of us want to do it so the hunters are the guys that are actually doing most for conserving the species. And it is actually an easy message to get across. It's the mechanism for having the conversation that is the problematic bit. Because like I said, I didn't intend or think about the fact that we were having hunters and non-hunters from different environments sitting down over breakfast, eating some venison that we've harvested. Mm -hmm. It was just a benefit, a natural, uh, a bit of luck, if you like, that, that actually came about, which allows us to have the conversation. Uh, and therefore, we can we can have that conversation. But it's the conversation with a lot of other folk. That's the difficulty we have. You know, you, you, a lot of people, the, the podcasts that we're putting out, a lot of people that listen to the podcasts are, are hunters. But it is now spreading because mm -hmm. they've got partners who start to listen to them. I mentioned the shooting show earlier on. And funnily enough, on the last night, I got an inquiry from 
um, the girlfriend of a, of a guy that's just getting into hunting, and she sits and watches the shooting show with him. So she secretly got in touch with me. She emailed me only, only a couple of days ago and said, look, I'd really like to get both of us up. Um, my husband doesn't know about it, the boyfriend doesn't know about it, but I'm trying to organise it as a bit of a Christmas present. Can we sort something out so that he could come along and I'll come with him? So, you know, we, we just slowly keep trying to reach out with it. And if we're all doing it, if we're all trying to do it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of hunters out there. Yeah. We, we, can, we, can, we can make a bit of a difference, um, but we just need to understand that's what we need to do. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, uh, that kind of, what you just said right there, that is a very good way to sum it up where, you know, the non-hunters and the hunters alike, that they need to just have those conversations and they need to, you know, just be open-minded to, you know, how the other one views, you know, hunting and stalking and and you're going to get a lot more positive that comes out of it than negative if you do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So... All right, Chris. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, to tell us about the company today and tell us about your history and, you know, with the company and getting into, you know, into stocking and kind of how the conservation model works over there in Scotland and all that stuff. It was it was super interesting to me. I mean, I know we had a chance before we started recording to to talk for 10 or 15 minutes, too. And it's uh, it's, it's very interesting. And I like to hear, you know, someone who has a different perspective, well, not a different perspective, but a different way of how hunting and all of that kind of comes together and what it looks like, you know, in a different area. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Yeah. You as well. We'll, we'll be safe and uh, hopefully we can talk to you again soon. Yeah. I'd love to. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. A big thank you to Chris for hopping on the podcast today and telling us more about uh, life as a stalker uh, in Scotland. Uh, I'd also like to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure and check them out. Stoneglacier.com also like to thank our partners at 2%. Um, to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support uh, when you're searching for your coffee or your books or your real estate, your piano repair companies, your contractors, uh, your you know your gear, obviously, whatever, whatever it is that you're looking for. Be sure to check out fishandwildlife.org and see if there's a 2% um, certified brand that uh, provides what you're looking for Uh, i also encourage you guys to give two percent a follow on social media uh, where it's going to be nothing but very positive um, conservation driven content Uh, so again if you'd like to learn more about two percent for conservation you can look for them online on their social media or at fishandwildlife.org thanks for tuning in this week guys hope you enjoyed this week's episode with chris Uh, remember stay safe out there and conservation starts with you